0: Well, Lord, again, we do thank you for tonight. We ask your blessing now as we study your word. What a wonderful book. Bless us as we go through it. Lord, as we go through your word, may your word go through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the British people, they were really angry. Their princess was dead, and yet the flag wasn't flying half-mast over Buckingham Palace. Not even the death of Princess Diana could change a royal tradition. You see, the queen's standard never flies over the palace, not even at half-mast, unless the queen is in the house. I bring up the flag since it's often used as an illustration. I've heard it said, joy is the flag that indicates that King Jesus is in residence in the palace of our hearts. You see, the book of Philippians is all about joy, but its message is that unlike the queen's flag over Buckingham Palace, at times the flag of joy does fly at half-mast. You see, the joy of the Lord is present even in the midst of tough times, in trials, in heartbreak. The believer's joy is not dependent on smooth, happy circumstances. It's amazing that this letter on joy begins with a couple of guys in jail. Chapter 1 starts, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. It's the year 62 AD. Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting his day in court before the wicked emperor Nero. Whether he lives, whether he dies, is about to be decided. It could go either way. The book of Philippians is one of four letters, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, that we call the prison epistles. They were written during Paul's incarceration at Rome. He's behind rusted bars, and yet he's brimming with joy. It's a miracle, really. Joy from a jail cell. That's the book of Philippians. But I want you to imagine tonight. A doctor has just diagnosed you with a cancer, but God has given you this strange peace. You just got a pink slip from your boss, but somehow you're not worried. You know God is in control. You heard your friend just died in an automobile accident, but you know, you're not too upset because you're sure he's in a better place. What is that? That's joy at half-mast. And joy at half-mast is the theme of the book of Philippians. And how to experience in the midst of any situation is the secret that's revealed in these four chapters here in Philippians. We've got a lot to look forward to. Well, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The town of Philippi was in the region of Macedonia. It was one of Paul's initial stops after sailing across the Aegean Sea from Turkey to Greece. You can go back and read Acts chapter 16. It recounts the start of the church there in Philippi. The Philippians were some of the very first Europeans to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes to all the saints, but particularly with the bishops and the deacons. Bishop means overseer. The word deacon means servant. And these constituted the two categories of leadership in the early church. These were the two categories that helped out the pastors. The bishops or the elders concerned themselves with ministering to the spiritual needs of the church, whereas the deacons, they were the designated doers. They served the physical needs of the fellowship. And even today, we have elders and deacons, and they serve the same purposes. He writes to all the church... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My daughter Natalie is having twins in October. (laughs) She announced to us this past weekend, she thinks a boy and a girl. So she thinks. And I love how she broke the news to us. When we cut her cake, half the slice was pink and the other half was blue. Two colors made up the same slice, pink and blue. And you know, this is true of the gospel. It's a slice of God's blessing in two colors. Grace drew Jesus to the cross, God's unmerited love and favor. Peace now reigns in its aftermath. The New Testament is all about God's grace and peace. They're called the twins of the New Testament. Verse 3 tells us, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request of you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, you see, one of the reasons that Paul could rejoice, could literally take joy in any circumstance is that he was totally confident that God would finish what he had started in his life. I hope you have that confidence. Now, I personally am notorious for starting projects I don't finish. That's me. I I have jobs that just sort of keep rolling over to the next honeydew list, if you know what I mean, guys. But I'm not the only one. Did you know that Michelangelo... Considered a genius, considered a tremendous sculptor and painter. His works, his statues of Moses and David are considered among the world's masterpieces. And yet, did you know that there is an entire museum in Florence, Italy that's dedicated solely to the unfinished works of Michelangelo? (laughs) Apparently, he had the propensity of starting things that he didn't finish. But not so with Jesus What he starts, he finishes. If you're discouraged tonight, if you've tried and failed, I want you to take heart. For Jesus hasn't begun his work in you to leave you high and dry. He doesn't abandon us in midstream. He he intends to hang in there with you. That's why you need to hang on to him. Remember, Jesus has no unfinished projects. Notice verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I longed for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I love this beautiful statement that Paul makes of the Philippians, I have you in my heart, I think Paul's life was full of joy, and here's a reason why. His priority was people, not stuff, but people. Paul wasn't concerned with the clothes on his back or the roof over his head. There was no joy in such things. His life revolved around the friends that were in his heart. At his retirement party, a fellow made this statement. As I look back on my career, my fondest memories are not of the money I made or the goals I accomplished, but the relationships I formed. Isn't that true? No man ever gets to the end of his life and asks to see his wallet. He asks to see his friends and his family. As Paul said to the Philippians, because I have you in my heart. Life gets joyless Not when we go through tough times, but when we go through them alone. That's when it gets joyless. Hey, the road is hard for us all, but don't let it get lonely. Keep your heart full of people. And Paul prayed for these friends. He says, in this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. Now, as your pastor, I have a very real fear that the more you get to know me, the less you'll really like me. It's true. I mean, people see me up front and they think, wow, that Pastor Sandy, he must be such a wonderful guy. You come up afterwards and you say nice things and I smile back. But you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what's going to happen when this person realizes that I'm not the perfect pastor and that I make all kinds of mistakes and I pick my nose and I fight with my wife I mean, getting to know me is risky business. This is why, if you want to experience joy, it is crucial that you fix your eyes on Jesus and no one else. Did you know that Jesus is the one person of which it can be said, the more you get to know him, the more you're going to like him? Did you know that? He has no downside. Jesus is thoroughly cool. Hey, remember that when you pray for someone. Did you know all that keeps that person from falling head over heels in love with Jesus is to get to know him better? That's all it takes. Our love for Jesus abounds as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. That's what Paul prays. And then he prays that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, it's easy to choose from good over the bad. But it's more difficult to pick out the best from the good. You know, when you first become a Christian, God calls on you to clear out all of the evil and replace it with what's pure and holy. You're choosing between good stuff and bad stuff, right stuff and wrong stuff. And usually those choices are pretty clear cut. But you see, God wants more for you. Not just good things, but He desires the very best that life can bring. It's been said the good can become the enemy of the best. You see, good things can crowd out the best things in our lives. We all need to pray for the discernment to be able to pick out the things that are excellent, to be able to pick out the best over the good. And then he prays that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. In other words, he's praying for a lingering, lasting sincerity. You know, in every Christian's life, there is a gap between what we are and what we should be. You know that. And at first, our goal is to shrink that gap. We want to maintain a genuine faith. But over time, the tendency is to begin to ignore that gap or to become content with the gap as it is or to even deny that there is a gap. No, Paul prays that God will keep the Philippians on the cutting edge of their commitment. That they'll grow and that they won't become dull to either where they're at or where they need to be. But they'll continually want to close down that gap. He's praying that they will maintain the sincerity of their faith. He continues his prayer for the Philippians in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, he's praying that their lives would be stamped with God's fingerprints. If someone were to ask, do you know God? Would you be able to respond, well, check me for prints. Just check and see if there's fingerprints on my life. Look for the evidences of knowing God. Are they found on my life? Is there a love in my life? Is there a joy? Am I producing good works? Is there a hunger for God's word? Hey, Paul wants us all to be able to say, hey, check the fingerprints. Check for the evidences. Look for the fruits of righteousness in my life. They're there because of the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. So, when you pray for me, I want you to pray for me the way Paul prayed for the Philippians. Would you? Pray that my love for Jesus will abound as my knowledge grows. Pray that I'll be able to discern the best from the good. Pray that I will stay sincere my whole life long. And then pray that the fingerprints of God will be found on my life. When you pray for me, I hope you pray like that. And then verse 12 tells us, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now here's another reason Paul rejoiced in difficulties. He knew that God was in charge. You see, God had seen to it that his imprisonment had advanced the gospel. God had turned Paul's prison into a platform. At every opportunity, Paul was coming in contact with the palace guard, and he was using those contacts to witness of his faith in Christ. Notice the word furtherance here in verse 12. It's the translation of the Greek word prokope, which referred to a group of woodcutters that would clear the way through a dense forest for an advancing army. Paul saw his jail time as an opportunity to take the gospel to people who otherwise would have never heard it. He says, my chains are the will of God for my life. You know, most of us would be bummed out to get thrown into prison. We'd moan and whine and probably accuse God of abandoning us. You know, I think we need to retrain ourselves. We need to retrain our thinking to view our inconveniences as God's opportunities. That was true of Paul. Reminds me of the story of Cliff Barrows. He was Billy Graham's right-hand man for over 60 years. But it's interesting how the two men first teamed up. Barrows and his new bride, they were on their honeymoon. They had scraped together just enough money to buy two train tickets and some hotel reservations. But when they reached their destination, they found that the hotel where they were to stay had been shut down. They ended up in a vacant room over a grocery store. The next day, the owner of the store, he heard Cliff playing some Christian songs on his trombone. He told him about a rally being held that night. A young evangelist named Billy Graham was in town. Barrows went. And it just so happens, that particular night, the man in charge of the music didn't show up. And so Cliff Barrows was asked to help. The rest is history. You see, what seemed to be a disaster was meant for the furtherance of the gospel. When you're delayed, when you're sidetracked, when you're inconvenienced, it could be that God is rerouting you to be a witness for him for the furtherance of the gospel. Notice verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, Paul's boldness had inspired other Christians to come out of the closet and be a witness. See, if Paul could witness behind bars, then how could they not witness in open air? He says Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew that the sudden rash of Christian witness was coming from a mixture of motivations. Some of the preachers were truly inspired by Paul. Others, though, figured that while Paul was out of commission, they could sort of make a name for themselves. They saw Paul's imprisonment as a chance to increase their popularity. He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now now understand, Paul is not suggesting that, that our motive doesn't matter in our ministry. Not at all. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 3, we're taught that it's not just the quantity or the quality of what we do for the Lord that matters. It's the motive behind it that determines our reward. In other words, God judges the heart of the minister, the motive of the minister. The right motive is a must as far as God is concerned. But it may not be that important to the person receiving the ministry. You see, where the pure gospel is preached, even if the preacher's motives are suspect, still power is conveyed through the gospel. The gospel is powerful, no matter who preaches it. Isaiah 55, verse 11 reads, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, that it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God's saying, whenever my word goes out, it gets the job done. God's word is powerful. And one of the proofs of its power is its ability to shine despite some of the shady people who've preached it. (laughs) Sadly, not every pastor has the best of intentions. You recall how God spoke to Balaam out of the mouth of a donkey. He does that every Sunday morning in churches all over the country, including Calvary Chapel. Just because God chooses to use a man to share his truth doesn't mean that he's placing his stamp of approval on everything else going on in that man's life. It just means that God loves people and there's power in the gospel and that he'll use any means available to save people and to heal people with his truth. Paul continues, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that as these Philippians pray, the Lord is going to bring him deliverance. But you see, Paul's goal is was more important than just his deliverance, just his release from prison. He has a greater goal. He says in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope, this greater goal I have, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or Or by death. You see, far more important to Paul than his deliverance from jail was his witness for Christ. His earnest expectation and hope, his strongest desire, his deepest longing is that he won't buckle unto the fear of death or to the pain of torture, but that he'll shine brightly for Jesus Christ until the last ray of light has been exhausted from his life. Paul says, Whether I live or whether I die, my passion, is to magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. And then I love what he says next. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love how this reads in the Living Bible. To me, living means opportunities for Christ and dying, well, that's better yet. <laughs> Here's why Paul could take joy in any situation. All that mattered to him was Jesus Christ, was glorifying and magnifying Jesus Christ. That's all he cared about. You see, Paul had put all of his eggs in one basket. Jesus wasn't simply a slice of Paul's pie. Jesus was the whole pie. He put all his eggs in one basket. Everything else in Paul's life gained its significance only as it related to Jesus. Jesus was all that mattered to Paul. Even his own survival paled in comparison to the importance of Jesus Christ in his life. He says if he lived, great, he'll be used for God's glory. If he dies, he'll see Jesus face to face. I mean, you can't lose when Jesus is all that matters. But what if Paul had said, to live is money? Well, then he'd had to say, and to die is to leave it all behind. Or to live is fame. Well, to die is to be forgotten. To live is power. Well, to die is to be stripped of it all. To live is stuff. Well, to die is to take nothing with you. No, Paul not only placed all his eggs in one basket, but he put them in the right basket. Jesus is all that really matters. And joy is found... When we begin to live our lives as if that statement's true, when we begin to really live like it. I have a favorite scene from a movie. The movie's called "The Wind and the Lion." Maybe you've seen it. Sean Connery, he, he plays the Razuli. He, he plays the leader of the Berber bandits that fight against Western imperialism in the deserts of Morocco. And at the end of the movie, his army has been trounced. In the final scene he and his right-hand man that they're on horseback they're riding there on the beach all has been lost his sidekick he moans he says Razuli we've lost everything we've lost everything but with this roguish laugh the Razuli he rides off into the sunset and he turns and he shouts as he leaves ah isn't there anything in your life worth leaving every, losing everything for <laughs> Isn't there anything in your life worth losing everything for? I would ask you that tonight. And this is how Paul saw Jesus. Paul was caught up in something far greater than himself or his own comfort or his own convenience or even his own plight in life. He realized that all that was important was the glory of Jesus Christ. No sacrifice was too large. He would go anywhere. He would do anything for Jesus' sake And ironically, no one ever lived a fuller, more satisfying, more joy-filled life than the Apostle Paul. In verse 22, Paul is weighing his options. He says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He's trying to chew. In Paul's mind, it was heaven or help out. Death for Paul would be heavenly. But to live would be more opportunities to count for Jesus. You know, I'm not sure you can really live your life to the fullest until you're first ready to die. Until you've counted the cost. Paul was not disappointed by unpleasant circumstances on earth because earth was the least he had to look forward to. Paul's hope was in heaven. And that's why he could take joy even in the midst of earthly difficulties. He says, In being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And after thinking it through, Paul concluded that he would be released. He was confident. He felt that he still had some work to do. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul's like a father encouraging his children to make him proud. He wants them and us to stand fast, to stand together, and to stand up for the gospel. I like this word translated striving. It speaks of an effort that drips with sweat and blood and tears, effort that goes beyond exhaustion. Paul says, leave it all on the field for the sake of the gospel. Pour out everything for the sake of the gospel. It's worthy of it. You know, high school football is a dreadful sport. I played all four years. But it is a dreadful sport. I mean, you practice five days a week for 16 weeks to play just 10 games. You dress out in this heavy equipment. You go through rigorous exercises. You endure the heat of the summertime. You take a beating every day while your friends are off at the pool. You risk getting injured, and for what? You get no pay, and you really get very little recognition. But here's why you do it. On those Friday nights when it all jails, when everyone clicks together, when the team is successful, when the gun sounds and the scoreboard shows that you're on the winning end, all of a sudden there is this tremendous joy that swells up inside. Everyone hugs each other. Everyone passes out high fives. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a sense of accomplishment. You were a part of something bigger than yourself. And all the practicing and the striving and the agonizing really paid off. And this is the hope. This is the joy. This is the joy. This is the excitement that I hope you find in the church. This is why we come together week after week. I mean, you labor. You serve the Lord with little or no recognition. You put up with the heat of little conflicts between each other and and you risk getting hurt. And why do you do it all? Because when it all clicks and God does get glorified and the enemy gets defeated, there is this incredible joy that comes with it. You're part of a team. You're part of something bigger than yourself. Life has greater meaning. You see, joy comes when we stand fast and we stand together and when we stand up for Jesus. And when we do so, we're not afraid. Notice verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. I'm not sure the Philippians saw persecution as an honor, but Paul did. It's always an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Even persecution is a reason to take joy. Chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and of course in Christ, there is certainly an abundance of all the above. I mean, a Christian's joy comes not from his circumstances, but from the work that God is doing in his heart. The comforts, the joys of being in Christ are not situational. They're spiritual. God works them into our hearts. And since God is at work in you, Paul encourages the Philippians, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We need to be like minded with one another. Years ago, there was a small rural community in Minnesota that met to decide a name for their new town. It didn't take long for differing opinions to surface and for tempers to flare. The meeting grew contentious and got downright ugly. Finally, one of the leading citizens of the town pounded the table and he shouted out, Let's have harmony! His words just kind of hung in the air for a second or two until someone saw their relevance. And he shouted out, yeah, let's have harmony. And just like that, the town got its name, Harmony, Minnesota. Hey, we'll find in Philippians chapter 4 that not all was well in the church at Philippi. There were some sisters, Euodia and Syntyche. They were squabbling with each other. They were having this fight that was spilling over to the rest of the church Here Paul is shouting out, wait a minute, let's have harmony. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any of these blessings that we've talked about, let's be like-minded, let's be of one accord. Let's enjoy the unity that's ours in Christ. Let's focus on Jesus and be of the same mind and same heart. And then he tells us how. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Here is a wonderful formula for harmony in a church. Put selfish ambition aside. Esteem each other greater than yourself. Seek to serve rather than be served. And and where would we get such an idea? (laughs) Well, he tells us in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now here's the Phillips translation. I love this. It says, For he, Jesus, who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. You see, Jesus was God, but he stripped himself of the advantages of being God when he became a man. He became fully human. The word translated made, it means empty. He literally laid aside or he emptied himself of the clout and the privileges of being God. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of his divine advantages. And then Jesus, he took the form of a bondservant. He became a servant. The great composer Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? He replied, second fiddle. He says, anybody can play first violin, but it takes humility to play second fiddle. Hey, Jesus deserved honor and pleasure and glory, but he laid all that aside to work out a salvation for us. His comfort played second fiddle to our salvation. It says, and Jesus came in the likeness of men. A few years ago, I ran across a description of what life would be like if our next president was a dog. You want to know what life would be like? All public buildings would have a doggy door. The title Mr. President would become Here Fella. The Washington Monument would be replaced with a 100 story fire hydrant. And a new law would pass requiring everyone to dry with their head hanging out of the window. <laughs> if the next president was a dog, you'd have to become a dog to understand his policies and embrace their relevance. And likewise, for God to grasp the ethos and the feeling of the human predicament. He had to become one of us. He had to become a man. Jesus was God in human flesh. The Almighty got down on our level. He identified with our struggles. In Christ, He let us know just how much He cares. Notice verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man. And notice when God came to earth, He took a Y chromosome. Sorry, ladies, but he became a man, not a woman. Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. Why? Notice his greatest act of masculinity. Notice his greatest act of manliness. We read about it next. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This was history's manliest moment. You see, God's strength, His power had been on display throughout the Old Testament. God had conquered enemies and parted seas and done great miracles. But on the cross of Jesus Christ, God revealed His humility. You see, what made Jesus a man above all men wasn't that He could dish out pain and enforce His will, but that He could endure pain to accomplish God's will. That's what made him a man among men. He was capable of costly obedience. This is the mark of a real man. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, God exalts the humble. And he'll start with Jesus. The one who descended so low will be exalted to the highest. Everyone will bow before Jesus. Either you'll bow your knee willingly or he'll break your kneecaps. One of the two. It's true. But in the end, everyone's going to bow. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, here's Christianity in a nutshell we work out what God has worked in. You and I are never required to work for or work on our salvation. Remember Jesus' final breath? It is finished. God worked for us and in us on the cross. His Spirit plants in us new desires and new dexterity. God works in us both to will and to do of His pleasure. But what God works in us spiritually, we work out practically. Here's the deal. God has a part and you have a part. God is the catalyst. He's the change agent. But we're the channel through which that gets carried out. I like this quote. Man can do nothing without God. We know that. Man can do nothing without God. And God will do nothing without man. God has a part and we have a part. See, God revs up the engine. But now it's up to us to let off the brake. Let it pop in gear. God puts in you the life of Christ. Then you take on the mind of Christ. God changes me. Then I change my mind. God lights the spark. Then I begin to steer. You have a part. God has a part. This is the working out of our salvation. Believe deeply and seriously and then start living out what you believe. Verse 14. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Good advice for the church. Reminds me of two groups of Maryland firefighters from neighboring counties. They arrived at the burning house simultaneously. And because it was unclear as to which fire department had jurisdiction, a fight ensued over which crew was responsible for putting out the fire. And yes, you guessed it. Irony of all ironies, The house burned to the ground while the cops tried to break up the fight between the firefighters. Sadly, this is the story in too many churches today. We complain and we argue with each other while hell rages. It's tragic. Paul continues, That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. In the world. Everywhere people gather today, squabbles ensue, squabbles erupt. I think the most obvious way for Christians to stand out in the world today is to simply get along. It reminds me of the high school principal who encountered a down and out ninth grader lingering in the hall. The principal asked him, He says, How are we today? The student answered, Awful. I don't understand that math teacher and all his crazy logarithms and postulates. The principal tried to calm the kid down. He says, Well, I'm sure we can, I'm sure that we can't find it all that bad, can we? The boy shot back, Sure, we can say that, but the you half of we doesn't have to learn the stuff all over again with the me half of we. And this is the problem in the church today we allow ourselves to split into the we-half and into the me-half rather than remaining together. We need to shine. And we shine brightest, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Here's the best way to preserve our unity and stay like-minded. Keep our nose and hearts in the word. Keep our focus on the Bible. He says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. In the Old Testament, the drink offering was poured out on the sacrifice to sort of soften and season the meat. Once it was applied, though, it was no longer seen. It was absorbed or cooked into the meat. The only one who appreciated it was the person who ate the sacrifice. He's the one that enjoyed the extra flavor and the taste. Spiritually speaking, the Philippians, they were the sacrifice. And Paul's life had been poured out as the seasoning or the drink offering. He was the steak sauce, so to speak. The meat tenderizer. He willingly poured his life into the Philippians with no desire for any recognition. He didn't mind that God was the only one to acknowledge his contribution because God was the only one who tasted the sacrifice. And I ask, is this the kind of influence that we're having on one another? It should be. Do we tenderize each other's lives? Do we add flavor to our church? Do we do it in a way to where no one really notices but God? We walk in humility. Do we add to each other's lives or do we irritate and pollute one another? These are the questions we should ask. Paul continues in verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Timothy knew Paul's heart so well. Paul trusted Timothy to represent him. He says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Christian ministry does attract sometimes more of its share of inflated egos. There are very few men like Timothy who Paul could trust. He says, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. He's saying, you know Timothy, he was a a known quantity. Apparently, Paul had led Timothy to Christ and had served as a spiritual mentor to young Timothy. Paul had been like a spiritual dad to Timothy. That's why he could trust him. That's why he had sent him to the Philippians. He says, Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul will send Timothy, but he was going to send another friend too, but he couldn't. Paul writes, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, in the Roman prison system, if you ate or if you were clothed, it came through the hands of your friends or family. There was no such thing as a guaranteed bed and as one of those orange jumpsuits and television and three square meals. That wasn't prison in Roman times. If the folks on the outside forgot you, then you went hungry. They're the ones that supplied you your meal. Apparently, the Philippians had sent Paul provisions through this messenger named Epaphroditus. Verse 26, Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus delivered the goods to Paul, but while he was in Rome, he got seriously sick, almost to the point of death. And notice this, Paul, the great healer, was powerless to help him. Obviously, Epaphroditus' illness was not the result of some sin in his life. My, he was on a goodwill mission. He was doing the will of God. You know, despite what preachers say today, Christians are not immune to sickness and disease. God has left us in a fallen world and in fleshly bodies. This makes us subject to the effects of sin. You know, here all Paul could do was to pray for his pal. Epaphroditus' recovery was not credited to some miracle or to some gift of healing. Paul says God had mercy on him. Well, the chapter closes... Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because the work of Christ, before the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You know, sometimes what we think are simple tasks end up far more threatening. Epaphroditus, he thought he was just a courier. His job was just to carry supplies to Paul, simple enough. But he almost died. The distinguishing trait of Epaphroditus is that he preserved. He persevered. He finished the mission that he started. And that's being like Jesus, isn't it? Finishing what you start. I think that's how we started the Bible study tonight. Chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is another reason to take joy. And so there we have uh, Philippians chapters 1 and 2. Father, thank you for your word and your love for us. Thank you for blessing us tonight through the truths of the Scripture. We pray we can take these things to heart Live them out in our lives and prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.